Good morning. This morning we had the privilege again of being back in the Word of God, back in the book of Revelation. And this morning I know I kind of briefly perused through this section of Scripture when we did the message to the seven churches as a brief overview, but this morning we're going to take a little bit more in-depth look. Um, Yes, it's another 11-point outline, but that's okay. (laughs) Yeah, you can... Tap your watch, show it to me. I'll, I'll try to keep that in mind. But this morning we're going to look at specifically Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. Um, yes, it's a big portion of Scripture to try to jump through in one week. Um, being that next Sunday is our fifth Sunday, I felt it kind of prudent instead of trying to stretch it out in two weeks to just put it together in one. Um, and then thereafter we're going to, I'll do a brief, quick, one-week synopsis of chapters 2 and 3 again, just as a brief reminder of what was there. And then we will dive into chapters 4 and 5, which I'm looking forward to. Chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation have been personally some of my most favorite chapters in the whole book of Revelation. Um, But this morning we're going to start in verses 9 through 20. Um, But in order to set kind of the the understanding of chapter 1 here, as we're looking at that, so the church at this time has now, so John, and I'm just going to give you an extrapolation of his age, he's about 90 years old at this point when John receives a vision of Revelation. So he's an old man because we all know, as we read this morning, God limited man's lifespan to 120 years. So John has now reached the end towards the latter days of his life. We know that John is imprisoned on the island of Patmos, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But the reason that John is in prison is because he is now considered a criminal. What was his crime? His crime was Christianity. So in the beginning years, in the first couple centuries, um, or first couple decades after the church was formed, after Christ went up, Christianity as a whole was looked upon by Rome as a sect of Judaism. Judaism was a legal religion under Roman rule, which is interesting because once Domitian became emperor, Christianity, because of the persecution of the Jews against the Church of Christ, moved him to call Christianity its own religion. And he actually labeled Christianity as atheists. You all kind of have that funny look of like, that doesn't make sense, but it does. So here's here's the understanding of why. So the pantheon of gods that Rome worshipped were plentiful. They had gods for everything. They had idols for every one of their gods. Judaism had a temple. They had priests, and they had the Ark of the Covenant. So they had their technical idol, their place of worship and sacrifice, and their priesthood. The Christian church was very much in stark contrast. They had no specific place of worship. They gathered where they could. They had no idols, and they worshiped a God who could not be seen or known outside of Christianity. So the gods of the worlds and the gods that the Romans worshipped, everybody could understand who they were by the idols that they looked at and what they represented. Christianity was very different. Therefore, Domitian labeled Christianity an illegal religion of atheism because they felt that they worshipped no true God. Plus, they denied emperor worship, which was a big problem for the emperor. But this is the world that we find ourselves in. This is the world that we find why John is now considered a criminal. It's because Christianity is now outlawed as an illegal religion. Judaism was still okay, which is interesting because anytime we find a false religion, it's okay under the Roman rule. Judaism has now become a false religion. And it is into this world that we find John on the island of Patmos. And we find John imprisoned for the testimony of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. But Patmos, well, let's set the stage, is about 40 miles off the coast of Asia, or what was considered Asia back then, off of the coast of Miletus. It was a volcanic barren island in the Aegean Sea, about 10 miles long and 5 to 6 miles wide. There was not much there. It was very barren, but it was a perfect place for exile, right? It was also, according to Roman history, a prison camp. Much like we find in a lot of countries nowadays. So this is where John is found as we begin Revelation 1. Revelation 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, 
your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow on a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Let's ask God's blessing upon his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the revealing of your word to John, that we may, centuries later, come and see what you had for your church even now. We thank you that this portion of Scripture should cause us to well up with joy, with thanksgiving, because this is the reason why we gather and we worship every week. We thank you that Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things. And Lord, we ask that as we go through your word this morning that you would give clarity and wisdom, that you would give us an understanding, that you would deepen our love and our affection for Christ and for what he does continually for his church. Lord, we just ask that you would be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we discussed already, John is on the island called Patmos. But it's interesting, in the first nine verses, John identifies himself simply as John three times. So starting in verse 9, we're going to look at John's humility. He says, I, John, your brother. John here identifies himself not as an apostle, which he was, also an apostle of the inner circle of Christ, which he was, along with Peter and James. And And he doesn't identify himself as a prophet which he is, but he identifies himself simply as John, your brother. He puts himself on the same playing field. He's not lauding his authority over the church. Even at 90 years old, he has lived a long life, a life full of fruit for Christ, and he does not hold that over the church. But he says in his humility, I'm your brother. John knows, as like Jesus said, that those in the Gentile nations lord their authority over those who are underneath them. But he says, with us it is not so. And therefore John continues in the humility of Christ to show himself worthy of Christ. Because Jesus working in John has brought him to a point of humility. John also identifies himself here as a fellow partaker in the tribulation. Now, here's a great point. All those who follow Christ will suffer tribulation. It's not an easy life. Jesus guaranteed suffering. Jesus guaranteed that you will suffer for his name. That was the whole point of the Beatitudes, was it not? Blessed are you. And John here, he he calls that out. But in that, he also exposes the truth of his exile. His exile wasn't just simply John. They put John on an island and told him, hey, stay over there by yourself and leave people alone. As I stated earlier, according to Roman history, Patmos was a prison camp. There were guards there. John, at 90 years old, was subject to hard labor. John did not have a nice, easy bed to lay upon, and it had to have been difficult. 
And yet we find John here on this desolate island receiving from Christ the greatest revelation that's given to us in Scripture outside of the salvation of Christ. And yet it's so wrapped up. But as I mentioned this morning, and it's hinted in the title is the ministry of Christ, this is why we as the church rejoice and celebrate and get together every week. It's because of the truth of who Christ is and what He's doing. We are going to see this morning the unfolding of the ministry that Jesus is doing in the church right now. The whole beginning section of John 9 through 20 is teaching and showing the church what Jesus is active doing today. This is our hope. Not just that Jesus died and rose again and he's at the right hand of the Father, but that he's constantly and ever living making intercession for his church. And that is the point that John is going to point to. We are not only fellow partakers in tribulation, but he says here, and in the kingdom, talking about the greater sense of salvation. We are all partakers in Christ of one kingdom because we are in the kingdom of his beloved son. We are in the kingdom of those who are saved by grace, not of works, lest we should boast. John calls out, this is the scope of our salvation, being united under the kingdom of God, under his beloved son. And he says also, I am a partaker in perseverance. That word perseverance means to remain under. As we are in this world, we are going to remain under the curse of sin. If you doubt that, look around you at the news. If you doubt that, look at what's going on in your life on a daily basis. If you doubt that, remember how you felt when you tried to get out of bed this morning. For some younger, it may not be that hard. For some of us who are a little bit older, it is difficult sometimes. But look at sin's impact on the world around us. Every day we are reminded of the fallen nature of humanity. So without an understanding of Christ and what He does, how do you have perseverance? Well, John said there's tribulation, and John was suffering alongside the church. The church was persecuted severely under Domitian. It was a, it's a fact. It's proven. But John says under this perseverance, uh, under this tribulation, we are a kingdom. We are united as brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, stand firm together. Why? Because the cord of three strands is not easily broken. Why? Because God made the church to worship and to live life together, to encourage, to rebuke, to resort, to teach in sound doctrine, to come alongside one another and love one another well to bear one another's burdens. John's pointing back to the truths of the Gospel. And then he says also in perseverance. And he says, where is that? Which is only in Christ. That's what he says right here. Perseverance which are in Jesus. Jesus is the source of our perseverance. Why? Because we and ourselves will fail and falter at every given moment. We and ourselves and our flesh will deny the Son of God. But it is by the power of Christ living in us that we do not deny Him. That we can stand firm, immovable. Tribulation and persecution will always go together. And then John says, I was on the island called Patmos. Why? Because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. These two things will always go together. Persecution will always be against the Word of God and the testimony of Christ. Because the Word of God we know from John 1.1 is Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It is these two things that we see as a characteristic of suffering. Why? Because Jesus himself suffered for that same testimony. When he was before Pilate, what did he say? I am here to testify to the truth. And Pilate asked a great question, what is truth? And yet he didn't follow that thought all the way through. But it is because of the Word of God and the testimony of Christ that the church is always under persecution. Because Satan hates the church. He hates believers with a passion. You know, as we've been reading through Genesis, a thought occurred to me earlier in this week. When Satan rebelled against God, God threw him out of heaven. God pronounced his judgment. And now, he was thrown out of heaven, and now he is along on earth. But how great of a surprise it must have been when he said, you will not surely die, 
What do you think he was expecting? He was expecting death. He was expecting Eve and Adam to eat of the fruit and to drop dead. For that judgment to be pronounced immediately. And yet, what did he see? He saw the mercy of God, a sight of God he'd never seen before. God did not destroy them on the spot, but God provided a way through a sacrifice. And that's what we're looking at this morning, is what is the sacrifice of God through Christ for the church? So now we're going to look at the body of the text, and we're going to look at what is the ministry of Christ today to his church. And that's where we're going to find our encouragement so we can stand and persevere so that we as a church can make much of Christ. As I said this morning, this is the reason we gather and we worship week after week after week. It's because of who Christ is and what He does for His beloved bride. It's interesting, John opens up in verse 10 here, and he says this, "...and I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day." Now, a lot of people like to extrapolate this out and make this some spiritual thing that you can all attain to one day. If you get spiritual enough, you can get like John and hit this plane of spiritualism. It's not what he's talking about. Just like Ezekiel or Isaiah or, well, John, and as Paul and some of the other apostles saw the risen Christ and experienced something that was not specific to the whole church, but was given to specific men as apostles for authority, John experienced the same thing. He was on a different plane. There is a spiritual world that we do not see with our human eyes. God talks about it in the Scripture. That was where John had found himself because the Spirit had brought John before the Lord for a specific reason. And what was that? It was the revelation of Christ and what Christ wanted him to see. And he says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And we can take from that the word, the Lord's Day, actually means Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. It was when the church met for fellowship. It was when the church got together to make much of Christ. And we still find ourselves thousands of years later doing the same. Praise God for his faithfulness. But he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And then he says this, And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. How many people know what a trumpet sounds like? They're loud, right? Very clear. They have like that commanding tone to them. Oftentimes we find trumpets were used in battle to gain attention, to make a proclamation, to make clear a command. Well, he actually, this is extrapolated out of Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus 19. Exodus 19, we see this also clear commanding voice of God as the sound of a trumpet. Exodus 19 and verse 16. This is when they were at Mount Sinai. And God came down to speak with Moses. Exodus 19 and verse 16 says this, And so it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. So all the people who were in camp trembled. God oftentimes, when he speaks, speaks in that loud commanding voice, and it should cause terror and fear because God is holy and because we are not. But John says that he heard a voice behind him, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And John now is given a command. This is the first command that we see here, the first of 12 commands for John to write. Throughout the book of Revelation, John is commanded 12 times to write something specific. And one time he was commanded not to write something. Because again, the hidden things belong to the Lord. But here is he commanded to write, and what is he supposed to write? So in John's humility, he is given a command, and this is what it was, saying, write in a book what you see. So John is now told that what you are beholding, that all of us as the church don't get to see, at least not yet, we get to see what John sees and experience it for the purpose of Christ revealing the ministry that he has to his bride, to the church. It's for encouragement. But he says this, write what you see and send it to the seven churches. And he goes on and he lists the seven churches. Now it's interesting here, because if you take the order, it's not a just generalized order. John was on the island called Patmos, which was 40 miles off the coast of Asia, which is where the seven churches were. The closest port was Miletus. From Miletus, the closest city is what? Take a guess. Ephesus. 
The Romans built a great road. It was called the Great Circular Road that went through Asia, and it went around in a clockwise circle. And the order that Christ tells them to write is the order of the churches that you geographically find them in if you take that road, Ephesus, Smyrna, all the way around, and back again. So God didn't tell John to just write in a particular order and send it to these churches. This was the order that the messengers would go, taking the book of Revelation to the churches and delivering those letters to the seven churches. It's just an interesting little tidbit, interesting little fact that we find here, that God is a God of order. So we have the unfolding, of vi- unfolding vision here of Christ's ministry to his church. So now we're going to begin with that vision and what it entails. Verse 12 and, thir- and the beginning of verse 13, we see that Christ empowers and desperately loves his church. And he is also the focus of the church. Verse 12, And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And then in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. We see that Christ is active in His church. That God did not make the church and say, good luck. God made the church and He blesses it by being a part of it. He is active. He is ministering to His churches. He is continuing to be in the center. He is continuing to work and work out the things of the church. But not only that, he calls the church lampstands. They're symbolized here as golden lampstands. And there's actually significance to that. One, we are what? Philippians 2.15 tells us we are the light of the world, right? But not only in there are we the light of the world, but Philippians 2.15 talks about being undefiled and pure so that your testimony before the world will shine like stars in the universe. Again, lights. We are to be significantly different and to stand out in the darkness. Because great is the darkness around us. But then he uses the other word that they are golden lampstands. Not only are we to be light bearers of Christ to the world, but he describes it as gold. Well, because gold in those days was the most precious substance that they found. Well, what does that mean? Well, that symbolizes the great worth of the church. Now, how do we know that? Because Christ gave his blood for the church to redeem the church from its sin, to make it pure and innocent and holy and beloved, and presentable before His Father. Acts 20.28 tells us that He, with His own blood, purchased for Himself sinners of every kind. It's interesting, too, that He uses the, the number seven for the churches and seven lampstands. Seven is the number of completeness in Scripture. We see that all over the Scriptures. So it's not just symbolic of churches throughout the ages and the completeness of the church in Christ, but it's also there were seven physical churches. These were churches that, jo- that the letters that John wrote, specifically the letters in, two in chapters 2 and 3, were sent to. But it's interesting now that we come to the description of Christ in the middle of those lampstands. And he says, I saw one like the Son of Man. That is a specific reference to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 and verse 13 where Christ and God is pictured as one, as the Son of Man. That is great significance. It's one of the most used terms that Jesus used of Himself in the Gospels. Turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 should be a very familiar passage to you. Matthew 28, we know, is the Great Commission. And in Matthew 28... And in verse sorry, uh, 20, he says this, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So as John is describing the completeness of Christ, the Son of Man, among his church, walking among the church, he gives us that picture that Christ's ministry is not going to be complete until the church is taken to heaven in the great rapture. Because Jesus made the promise, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. He will one day make that promise complete when He comes for His bride. And as He comes for His bride, we can see that Christ will take care of her and cherish her. And you'll see the beauty of the church purified by the presence of God and by the lack of sin. But as He pictures Him here in Matthew, 20, uh, in Matthew 18 and 20, 
Jesus often talked to him of himself as the son of man. And that claim he made rattled a lot of cages. The Pharisees did not like the fact that he called himself the son of man because it was a direct quote of being the son of God. And they get that from Daniel 7. But Christ is among his church. Make no mistake, as we worship this morning, Christ is here with his church. He walks among his church. He empowers her. He purifies her. He loves her. Also in Matthew 18, he talks about dealing with sin in the church. We all know about Matthew 18 and church discipline. Christ is involved in that because why? It's difficult. But he empowers his church to deal with sin. Why? Because sin is an abomination to the Lord. And we are to live holy lives, righteous and pure. You can't do that when you have sin in your life. So he empowers us to deal with sin. And then he gives a great promise. In Hebrews 13.5, he repeats the promise of Deuteronomy, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's not a greater promise in Scripture than that, that we are not left alone and left to ourselves, but that he is here with us, guiding and caring for us as his own. Never to leave us. So now as we continue in verse 13, we see something else. And now we're going to get into the clothing of Christ. John describes as he turned around and he looked, he saw the lampstands which signify the church as we learn in verse 20. And Christ walking among his church. How does Christ walk among his church? So John gets into a description here in the next point we're going to look at of his clothing. And then he moves into the personal character of Christ and what he physically looks like. And it gives an insight into the church of what Christ is and what he does. Point number three, Christ makes intercession. Christ is our great intercessor, our great high priest. So we see here in verse 13, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And it may, sometimes we may not get the understanding of what John's describing here and why it's significant, but there's actually significant that word that he uses for robe. So robes are worn by two different sects of people or three if you want to break it down into three, prophets, priests, and kings. Royalty. We're clothed in robes. But the word here is actually a word that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek of the New Testament, right? The original Greek of the New Testament. So in the Septuagint, it uses this specific word seven times. Six out of seven times, it refers to the high priest's robes. So John is painting the picture here for us of the high priestly nature of Christ. And that's important for the church, as we're going to get into. And then a golden sash actually references back to Exodus and Leviticus, talking of Aaron's robes. As the high priest, they were to wear a sash across their robe. You can look that up in Exodus 28.4 and Leviticus 16, if you want to get into that later. We're not going to do that this morning because I've got a lot to get through. But in describing the high priestly role of Christ, John is setting the stage for why we as the church understand the ministry of Christ because this hits the heart of salvation turn with me into the book of Hebrews and we're going to start jumping through a lot in Hebrews because this sets the whole stage for everything else we're going to go through because the ministry of Christ is our great high priest and our intercessor is the foundation of our solid faith in Jesus Christ it is the foundation of our salvation through his blood Hebrews chapter 2 Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 17 and 18 says this. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in those things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in all in which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The great picture of Christ as our high priest. Because the high priest year after year after year after year had to go in and shed blood for his sins and then for the sins of the people. It was the whole point of Passover. And yet, Christ fulfilled the Passover. That's why we celebrate the last Passover, right? When your Bible is under the heading where Jesus celebrates the last Passover, that's for that whole reason, because Passover was fulfilled in Christ. It was no longer needing to be done. That ritual and routine of sacrificing a lamb no longer needed to be. 
because Christ fulfilled it as the Lamb of God. Turn over to chapter 3, or you might not have to turn over, but 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered into the holy place once for all, once for all having obtained eternal redemption. Now, who else has to speak on that? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is a great chapter. Actually, the whole book of Romans is great. But Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. Paul also speaks of this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And here is, again, our rejoicing in Christ because he is our great high priest. Romans 8, verse 33 and 34. For who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Do you see the picture that John is painting as he describes the risen Christ in Revelation 1? John is showing and picturing him not only as the Lamb of God, but also as our great high priest, the one who is able to remove sin from mankind. It is through Christ and Christ alone. That's why when he was on earth, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We have a great high priest who intercedes for us. And praise God that we do. Where would we be if we had no one to intercede for us? You know what the devil does. Scripture tells us he stands before God continually accusing the brethren. And is he wrong? No. Are we sinful? Absolutely. Are we worthy of death? Absolutely. Are we worthy of the holy and righteous wrath of God? 100% unequivocally yes. If you doubt it, that you're, that you're not worthy of that, check your heart. Because Scripture is clear and it's adamant that we are all worthy of death because of sin and our personal sin. And it was because of that that Christ went to the cross. And it's because of that that Christ now purifies and makes intercession for his church. Because even though we are guilty, we are holy and righteous before God because of the blood of the Lamb. Moving on, let's look at the personal character of Christ. Verse 14. And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when they have been made to glow in a furnace. It's interesting here, now we're looking at the character of Christ, of who he is. As John has now signified and showed us that Christ is our great and worthy high priest, he now moves on to Christ and what he does as that high priest for us. And the picture of Christ as pure and holy reiterates the fact that Christ purifies his church through judgment and chastisement. This is the picture that John is painting for us, that Christ is not only our intercessor, but he's also our judge and our refiner. Christ has to refine his church. Why? Because we still sin. Because we're not perfect. If any man stands before you and says they no longer sin, they're a liar. But Christ purifies his church. Why? Well, what did Jesus say in Matthew 5.48? He gave us a command in Matthew 5.48, Be holy, because God is holy. The Apostle Peter said the same thing. 1 Peter 1.16 and 17, he says, Be holy, because God is holy. That comes out of the book of Leviticus. 
The book of Leviticus is all about the holiness of God. Yes, it's a bunch of rules and regulations, but it's about the holiness of God. And we are to be holy because God is holy. Because without holiness, we will not see God. So how is that accomplished? How are we made holy? Well, it's interesting because Paul answers that question for us. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. So this is how we are to appear. For we are the bride of Christ. Paul says this, 11, verse 2. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Why? For I betrothed you to one husband. And who is that husband? So that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. So Paul is picturing the, Christ, uh, the church as the bride of Christ. Flip over to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is a great, great chapter. It's a phenomenal chapter on being imitators of Christ, what the church is to look like in worship of Christ, and what the church is to look like in its relationship between husband and wife for the glory of Christ. But in Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 25 through 27, he equates this. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. So here we now picture Christ purifying his church. Listen just as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. Why? So that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, nor wrinkle, nor any such thing, so that she would be holy and blameless. That is why Christ is our great intercessor. That is why Christ refines and disciplines his church. That is why Christ is active each and every moment of every day in the life of the church. To make her pure. To make her holy. To make her a bride adorned for the glory of God. We are to be holy because God is holy. And if we are the bride of Christ, we are not to be any less holy. How does he do this? Well, John John describes for us here how Christ does that. And also in, in the book of Hebrews, which is one of my favorite Old Testament, New Testament books. The book of Hebrews. A lot of people have a hard time with it because they don't enjoy the Old Testament. It's hard to understand an Old Testament, New Testament book if you don't understand the Old Testament. But the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 specifically talks about the chastisement of God. Why? Because if we are children of God, just as parents and fathers discipline their children for their good and to develop their character and to show love, so God does with his own children. If God did not discipline us, we would be cast off as illegitimate heirs and sons of God. But it is not so, because Christ will always place his finger on the sin in our life. Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to yield? Are you willing to say, yes, Lord, that is a problem? Are you willing to look at your sin in the face of a holy God? Are you willing to look at Christ and say, Lord, where, do I, where am I not sufficient? What do I need to work on? Just as David cried out, Lord, search my heart, know my thoughts. Right? Do we do that? I'll tell you what, if you ask God to reveal your sin in your life, be ready because he will. Why? Because he loves you as a child. And he loves you as a bride that's to be adorned for her husband. And he moves on and he said, and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. This again goes back to Daniel 7. This again confirms the deity of Christ because in Daniel 7 he's talking about the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and that his hair was white like white wool, like snow. And that description speaks not only of the eternality of God, but the full and complete wisdom of who he is. He is all knowledge. He is all wisdom. And he speaks of this of Christ here. And he confirms to the church again, yes, he is not only the Son of God, he is God completely. Him and the Father are one. Jesus often said that. And that word white in the Greek means a bright, blazing, or brilliant whiteness. It's dazzling. It's unlike what we understand as white. We look at this and it looks white. But the purity of God and the holiness of God is much more than that. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
You know, there's a really neat verse. Turn with me to Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10. There's a really neat verse there. And it describes this point of the, the eyesight of God of being like a flame of fire. It's really good. Matthew 10, verse 26. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, and nothing hidden that will not be made known. We will all have to do with God. That's the point. Christ's eyesight is piercing. There is nothing that is hidden that will not be made known. There is nothing that is in darkness that will not be brought to light. Deeds done in darkness will be brought to light at the judgment of Christ. But for those who are in Christ, He will reveal it so that way we can see where we need to yield more. That we can see where we have a sin problem. That way we can say, I cannot do it on my own. The light of God's Word through Christ illumines the heart and the mind of a believer. What did Ephesians 5 tell us? It is through the washing of the water and the Word. We must be people of the Word if we want to be a holy people for God. Because God speaks to us how? We're going to get to that a little bit later, but He speaks to us through the Word, which is Christ. And He's given us the complete Word of God so that we may be holy and pure, set apart, And he goes, not only is the eyesight of God piercing, is it inescapable scrutiny. God is able to see the things that we do not see. But then he says, and he speaks of judgment in verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, which has been made to glow in a furnace. Now back in the Old Testament days, and even in Christ's time, those who sat in judgment, kings or rulers that sat in judgment, often sat on an elevated dais or an elevated throne up above, so that actually most people were at foot level. It's about where most of them were at. And when they sat in that spot, it was to sit in judgment on people. To sit under their feet. And this is the description that John gives us here, that Christ sits in judgment on His church. Why? Not for condemnation. Because we know that Paul told us, there therefore is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So if he sits on judgment, it's for what? It's for purification. It's for holiness. It's for becoming more like Christ. And this is the beauty that we see and that we are blessed with as Christians, that we are purified from our sin for the glory of God. So that we may be holy and blameless, spotless and pure. Hebrews 4.14, or 4.13, sorry. Hebrews 4.13 says this, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we all have to do. Again, we will all stand before the throne of Christ. Which throne do you want to stand in front of? The great white throne of judgment or the judgment seat of Christ? Because there are two just as there are sheep and goats. But as Christ is portrayed here as our great high priest, as one who has all knowledge, who is one with God the Father, whose eyes can search the innermost parts of our being, who judges His church for its good and His glory, next John speaks of another aspect of Christ, and it's the authority of Christ's Word. And His voice was like the sound of many waters. Now, you are on a rocky island, right? Patmos, that's where we started. Do you think the seas crashed pretty hard on them rocks? John was aware of what waves and storms and water crashing on rocks sounded like, and it's deafening. Anybody ever been to either the Atlantic or Pacific? Good. Got a couple people, yeah. Well, when you stand out there, most of the... uh, I'll, I'll use New England as an example. I'm from Maine, so I like New England. Anyway, when you go up into Maine, most of the coast of Maine is extremely rocky. Yes, there are some sandy beaches, but a lot of it is rocks. And when you go there and the tide is coming in, those waves hit and crash on those rocks and you'll see great fountains of water spray up. And sometimes you'll even see water spray up where you didn't even know there was a hole. It's kind of neat. But anyway, you, it's deafening. If you stand there, it gets absolutely deafening. It's really loud, the power of the water. And yet it is the same voice and that same deafening voice that gives authority to the Son of God to speak to His church. 
The authority of Christ is wrapped up in the revelation of who He is and the greatness of who He is. And He is awe-inspiring. And He is authoritative. Why? Because He is God. This idea of the voice sounding like many waters is actually taken a lot from the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 43 and verse 2 speaks of when God spoke to Ezekiel. It was like the sound of rushing waters. The sound of many waters. It was great. It was mighty. It was awe-inspiring. Sometimes it can be terrifying when you're too close, right? Sometimes it gets a little scary. But also he has the authority of word. In John chapter 5, in the Gospel of John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, Christ speaks of his authority to raise the dead with a word. He has all authority to raise the dead. He has all authority over heaven and earth. What did he say? All authority has been given to me. He also said that since all authority has been given to him, we as the church ought to obey his words. What did he say in John 14? If you love me, you will obey me. Do we follow in obedience to Christ? Matthew 17 is the great picture of the transfiguration. And we know that Peter and James and John were all struck and kind of left dumb is the way the text reads. But we know that God spoke there, and what did he say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What was the last words that he said? Listen to him. The authority of God is wrapped up in the person and words of Christ. The authority of God is transcendent. We are to heed it. God's authority is through His Son. The the writer of Hebrews, right in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, says, God used to speak through the prophets. But now in our day, he speaks through his beloved son. God speaks to us through Christ. Why? Because it is the spirit of God that dwells in us who are regenerate in Christ. Moving on. Christ has control over his church. Verse 16. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And we know that the seven stars signifies the heads of the churches. Christ has authority and control over His church. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, Colossians 1 speaks of that authority that Christ has. It is the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's Colossians 1.18. Where God speaks that all authority has been given to Him for His glory and for the glory of God. So Christ has control over His church. He is active. That's also the importance of biblical leadership. So if we see this here, In the text where he says, in his right hand he held the seven stars. Down in verse 20 it says, the mystery of the seven stars were the angels of the seven churches. So I'm going to get into that a little bit later when we get in verse 20. But that word angel also is translated messenger. Sometimes it's hard to differentiate in the scriptures when they're using what. But the the common understanding is that when he said it's the angels of the seven churches, it's actually the heads of the churches, the messengers of the churches. So the leadership. Because God's not going to miraculously reveal from heavenly hosts to a human recipient John for him to take that and give it to an angel who is a heavenly being to report it back to the churches which is another human institution but also in the letters to the churches as you have we read through before God is speaking Christ is speaking directly to the angels of the churches or the heads of the churches the messengers of the church angels do not sin they had their choice once and for all back at the fall of Satan So therefore, when God is speaking in judgment that there are issues of sin in the church to the angel of the church in Ephesus or Smyrna or Sardis or Pergamum, he is speaking to the headship of the church. Christ is always holding the authority of the church. That's why it's so important as a church to be biblical in the leadership of the church. And God's not silent on that. 1 Timothy, Titus, he speaks of how biblical leadership is to look. Take some time and study that. Continuing on in verse 16, we're going to look at the protection of his church. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. He speaks in the letters to, the, to one of the churches about that. Yes, it's the protection of the church from sin and from apostate people and from the, uh, the attacks of Satan. In chapter 19 in Revelation, you see that it's the protection of the church as a whole in the end times that Christ will take His bride unto Himself and there will be a great feast. 
So it is the overall protection of the church against the world. But more importantly and more specifically, John is talking about the protection of the church from within. We see that as he gets into the, to the letters to the churches that is dealing with apostasy, that is dealing with issues of sin in the church. What is Christ's commendation to e- or condemnation to each of the churches? Except for two. You still have sin in your midst. You're not dealing with those who speak apostate. Those who have gone apostate and are bringing in outside religions, who are bringing in false doctrine. You're not dealing with that. Christ's protection of His church is that, as Jude tells us, we are to contend earnestly for the faith. That word contend is hand-to-hand combat. We are to be about truth. We are to speak truth in love, but we are to no less combat false doctrine. We are to no less combat false teachers. We are to be aware of that. Do you know that's also one of the qualifications of an elder and a pastor? It's to help make the church aware of what's going on. To protect the flock. Are we dealing with sin in the church? Jude, James, the Apostle Paul talked often of sin in the church and the importance of dealing with it. Moving on, the end of verse 16. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Now we all know that the sun is 93.522 million miles away. But yet it's really bright, right? If you look at it long enough, you can make yourself go blind. Imagine that sun being right up, right next to you. It's uncomfortable. It'd be difficult. But it's interesting because Christ, in his ministry to the church, is using the church as what? Lampstands. What do the lampstands do? They give off light. We are to be a reflection of Christ to the world. If Christ is so bright that he shines greater than the sun in its strength with his 93.522 million miles away, what should the church look like? It should be brilliant. It should be shining the glory of Christ to the world. Why? Because our world is very dark. Because it is tainted so desperately in sin. That phrase that John uses is actually taken out of Judges chapter 5, verse 31. It's actually interesting. If you go there and have time, go back and look up Judges 5, 31. Yeah, you can do that now too, John. <laughs> but it's actually taken out of there, that phrase. And it's talking about those who love the Lord. Those who are found in Him. Matthew thirteen forty three speaks of those who love Him will reflect His glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 speaks of the same. This is the effect that we see if we are beloved in the Lord, that we are showing the glory of Christ to the world through the purity of the church and the purity of the Word and the purity of the Gospel that is spoken. We are to reflect the glory of Christ. We are to show the world who He is. So what effect do we see on John and the apostles through this? Verse 17, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet like a dead man. I don't know about you. That's a great description of how we should come to our Lord. You know what's interesting is we have a lot of false apostles these days because I'm going to preface this with there are no apostles anymore. Biblically, there are no apostles anymore. There's nobody that's old enough to have seen Christ risen from the dead. there are a lot of false apostles nowadays. There's a lot of people that call themselves apostles and they use the excuse of, well, I had a Paul experience. You know what? Go through Scripture. Every man who faced Christ in His glory had this. Think of this. Uh, Sorry, lost my place. John here falls down at his feet like a dead man. The man Isaiah The prophet Isaiah, what did he say? Woe to me! Right? A pronouncement of judgment upon himself. Why? Because I am unclean. You guys know who Manoah is, if I say that name? You guys got to... Samson's dad. Samson's father and mother said, Woe to us, we should be dead because we have heard the voice of the Lord and seen God. Right? How about Ezekiel? Do you know what happened to Ezekiel? Every time he saw the glory of God, fell on his face. He was on his face before him. 
the Mount of Transfiguration. The men became stupid. That's what the Scripture actually says, the Greek says. How about Daniel? You guys read the visions of Daniel? He often became white of a white parlor, pallor, and no strength. He was totally sapped of energy and strength. What about Job? A righteous man, no less. And he said, I, should re- I repent and I repent in dust and ashes. How about Paul? And all the people that were with Paul, what happened to him? They all fell on their face. They all fell prostrate before Christ. Paul was also blind for a few days. The reaction is always the same. Overwhelming fear and unworthiness. You realize that? That the holiness of God is not a comfortable thing? Because it exposes how unholy we really are. And even though we are in Christ, it will still overwhelm us. We will still react in fear. Why? Because we are human and we know our unworthiness. It is not a sign of arrogance and pride that we see in our day and age. But what happens? The effect of seeing Christ made John fall at his feet like a dead man. But now we see another ministry of Christ. We have assurance. The assurance of Christ. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. The actual Greek is translated, stop fearing. Christ has given him the command, stop fearing. Stop being afraid. He placed his right hand upon him. He comforted him. He gave him assurances you no longer need to be afraid. And then he went on and expounded on why he no longer needed to be afraid. And Christ gets into his character here. And this is what's great. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So first we see that Christ uses that great expression, I am. You guys remember in the book of Mark, in the gospel of Mark, when Christ said, I am. What happened to all the cohort that came to arrest him? They all fell over, right? We often miss that sometimes when we read through there. The power of the statement of who God is, the self-existent one. There is none outside of him. It is the expression of total self-existence and self-reliance. John, turn with me to the book of John right now really quick. Chapter 8. John chapter 8. And this caused a lot of ruffling of feathers. Jesus is being confronted once again by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They are continuing to pester him about who he was. And in verse 58, in chapter 8, Jesus says this, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Do you know how many people were really, really a lot? Well, yeah, verse 59. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. They were not very happy. But it's a great expression of Godhead, of deity, of power, of who he was. So John no longer needed to fear because the great I am said, fear not. Then he says, I am the first and the last. When all other false gods will pass away, which they all will, there's still God. Is there not? Amen to that one. Praise God, one day we will not have to deal with false gods anymore. But he is the Alpha and the Omega, as he called himself back up earlier in the chapter 1. He is the first and the last. He's preeminent. This is why John no longer needed to fear. He also says, I am the living one. It is the title of God throughout all of Scripture. It is a picture of Christ we see throughout all of Scripture, that he is the living one, and in him is life and life alone. The church has life because of Christ. It is the message of the gospel. And it's because of the power of the gospel that John no longer needs to be afraid. And he says right here is, do not be afraid for not only am I the first and the last and the living one. He says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. That phrase can sometimes get a little muddy in the English language. I don't know about you, but I tell my wife all the time I hate English. English is really confusing. That phrase that he says that I was dead and now I'm alive, it actually in the Greek says, I became dead. So it's interesting, because if you take that you, and you understand the power of Christ and you understand what Christ did on the cross, is he came as a man, fully God, yet fully man. And in his human form, he died on the cross, yet he still did not die as God. See, see that? So you have Christ as man who died in the flesh. 
Yet he didn't die as God. He continued to live. Therefore, he is the living one. He is all life. He was dead as a human, but not as God. And that's why he says, Behold, I am alive forevermore. The eternality of God. Turn to Hebrews 7. Just back a little bit. Hebrews 7. If you haven't gotten the notion, Hebrews is a great book to be in. It explains a lot of stuff about Christ. It's great. Hebrews 7, verse 16. Hebrews seven sixteen, Who has become such, not as on the basis of the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. This is talking about the ministry of Christ as our high priest once again. The importance of that. Because he and in him alone is life. Romans 6, 9 also talks about that. Romans 6, 9. But then he goes on to say, not only am I alive forevermore, but I have the keys of death and of Hades. You know, that's a great statement for the church to not fear any longer. What is the power of Satan? Death, right? The power of Satan is death. For the wages of sin is... The wages of sin is death. Okay, there we go. We all got it. (laughs) So Satan has the power over people because of death through sin. But Jesus here speaks that he holds the keys not only of death, but of Hades. That word Hades is actually the same as the Old Testament Hebrew word Sheol. It's the abode of the dead. He has power over life and death. He makes this proclamation that in him and him alone, he has the power over life and death. He has all authority. Again, since you're already over in Hebrews, turn to Hebrews 2. We're going to reiterate this a little bit. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Again, we go back to Jesus said, John, you do not need to fear. Why? Because he has the power over life and death. In him is life and life eternal. We no longer need to fear death because Christ has conquered death in the flesh of His body and in the blood on the cross. Praise God. Amen, right? The proclamation of who Christ is right here is a great picture of why the church is still around today. What did Jesus promise? Jesus promised in... John 11 and John 14, he was talking about the church. That the gates of hell will not prevail over it. Why? Because he holds the keys to death and Hades. Christ will build his church and it will endure because Christ has the authority to do so. So then we're going to look at our last point and that's the duty that is given to John. Verse 19, Therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. So Christ here is talking about, write the things which you have seen. It is the revelation that John has received right now of who Christ is and his ministry in the church. Why? To encourage the church to continue on throughout persecution, throughout tribulation, throughout trials. I don't know about you, and I've said this a million times from up here, but I get wearier the older I get and the more I see the effects of sin in our world. The more depraved I see man and man become, The more I see of my own sin, it breaks my heart to see another reason why the nails had to be driven in his hands and his feet. When you sin, you should see the reasons Christ was on the cross. But John was to write of the things which he has seen, the revelation of Christ, the preeminence of Christ in the church, the reason the church gathers and worships week after week after week, every day, the reason we read the Word, And then he says this, and the things which are. 
speaking of what's yet to come in the chapters 2 and 3 of the church age, of the age of the church, when the church is here on earth doing the will of the Father, doing the will of Christ, being obedient as what? As John said in verse, cha- in verse 1 in chapter 1, as slaves of Christ. We are to be faithful in obedience to Christ. These are the things which are, and then the things which will take place after these things. And that's what we're going to jump into one, two, probably three weeks, is chapter 4 through 21, is the things which will take place after the church. The great tribulation, the judgments of God, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the new heaven and new earth. Praise God, can't wait for that. But Christ says here that He gives us of the mystery of what was in His hands and what He was among And that should give us a reason to make sure that when we come here to worship, that we come in a right spirit. That we worship in spirit and in truth. Why? Because Christ said that is what the Father desires. Those who worship in spirit and truth. I don't know about you, but the description of Christ here gives us great joy and courage to stand in the midst of all that we see going wrong. You know, Jesus spoke when he was on earth, when you hear of rumors of wars and wars and tribulations and all this stuff, don't be scared. Why? Because these things must take place. And as we approach the great day of Christ's return, things are going to get worse. Things are going to get difficult. But we need not to fear because the right hand of God is upon us. Because he strengthens his church. Because he's active in the lives of his church. Because he loves his church to discipline and purify her. And praise God that he does because we are made legitimate heirs in Christ through the adoption of God. Isn't that great? I love adoption. It's biblical. God speaks of it often. The doctrine of adoption is a great one to look at if you get time. But remember, Christ is active in his church. The ministry of Christ will reach to the end of the ages. Because he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the greatness of your word this morning. Father, as John had a humble heart and a humble spirit, may we also and likewise be humble people. People who are humbled by the risen Christ, by who you are, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, as your spirit continues to empower us to understand your word, Because it says without the Spirit, the Word of God is foolishness. Lord, let us look into your Word. Let us pray through it. Let us be diligent people of the Word. That the light of the Gospel may shine in our lives, the light of Christ to a world that is in darkness around us. A world that is trapped as slaves of sin. Lord, may we as slaves of Christ show the difference. That we may be bold to speak truth but that we may be quick to love and show compassion as Christ did for us. Father, we thank you for the time that we can gather together to make much and make great the name of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you will be with those who couldn't be here today. We ask that you will encourage them. Lord, as you lay them on our hearts and our minds, may we be faithful to reach out and to touch base and to continue to encourage one another through prayer and through sharing of burdens. Lord, may we be faithful to show Christ to those around us. And may we give you glory for all things in Jesus' name. Amen.